Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hi, Mark. Hey, Dana. Quiz question. Do you know how many people were on this planet the year you were born? This planet? Um, yeah, I'm not that old, so I don't know. They're about seven and something now, seven point something billion now. So let's just say there's six. There are 7.7 billion people on the planet now, and I looked it up the year you were born. There were 4.4 billion people. Hmm. And no listeners, you do not get to know our exact ages, but I'm roughly the same age as Mark. So let's continue talking about population today in light of the topic we're going to discuss, which is Asia. So there were 4.4 billion people on the planet when Mark was born, which is incidentally the same number that lived in Asia in 2015, just in Asia. That was almost half a decade ago. So there are actually more people living just in Asia than there were everywhere on the globe the year Mark was born. Huh. Okay. That's a lot of people. And, uh... Yeah, if you feel like back-calculating, you know, my age based on that number, go ahead. Uh, I won't be offended. But when I think about that in the context of BNF, it makes a lot of sense. So if you look at our 2019 electric vehicle forecast, about 60% of new vehicles sold in 2019 are being sold just in China. That's just one country. Or our new energy outlook for 2019, over 40% of clean energy investment between today and 2050, it'll be in Asia. So with over half of global greenhouse gas emissions coming from Asia, it is also a big part of the solution. And that's important context for the podcast today, where we'll be interviewing our colleague Justin Wu, who is based out of our Tokyo office and is the head of Asia Pacific for BNF. We wanted to talk to him about some of the trends that he's seeing in the region, but we realized this was a pretty lofty task. So we instead asked him to give us a few case study countries. Just to narrow it down a bit, he chose China, India, and Japan. So in today's episode of Switched On, we'll be talking about a few research notes that we've recently done. First is the 2H 2019 China market outlook. Second, or next, is a note titled Japan to take on plastics, but it's not quite in the bag. And the New Energy Outlook 2019 section on India. You can find all three of these notes on the Bloomberg Terminal at BNF Go or on BNF.com or on the BNF mobile app. If you want to know more about BNF's perspectives on Asia and you're not one of our clients attending our summit in Shanghai at the beginning of December, you'll be able to see a selection of videos from our speakers on our public website about.bnf.com forward slash summit forward slash Shanghai. And a quick reminder, BNF does not provide investment or strategy advice and you can hear a full disclaimer at the end of the show. Hi, Justin. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Dana. Great to be here. Not all of our guests, before they come on the show, get a challenge, but you did get a challenge. And the challenge that we posed to you was to represent some of the changing dynamics in the industries that we cover in Asia and to select three countries and ultimately three BNEF research notes that would explain that. Can you tell us what those three countries are and why you picked them? (laughs) Well, thank you, Dana, for, for acknowledging the, the challenge. Um, you know, I, I do I do get this question a lot. Pick uh, three countries or three things to represent a region, uh, which is Asia, which is, 
you know, more than two-thirds of the world and a and, uh, significant part of the uh, two-thirds of the population, two-thirds of the economy, uh, et cetera. So I, I took the easy route. I picked three countries. I picked China, uh, Japan, and India. Essentially, they're the three largest economies in Asia. So it's important to look at them because obviously what happens in them is going to have a major impact on how we think about climate change or how we experience climate change in the future. And often we have to acknowledge that even though things are moving in the right direction in some of these countries with regards to growing awareness for sustainability or policy changes that, that sort of uh, um, help to cap emissions, et cetera, we still have a long way to go. Uh, and there's certainly a lot of hurdles still to overcome in these places. So maybe jump into the first one. Let's start with Japan. There's a story to be had there. So one thing I didn't know was that Japan uses is the second biggest consumer of is it single use or all plastics? All plastics, yes. And yeah, I, I moved, um, I actually moved to Tokyo last year. So this, this sort of uh, issue became really front and center to me. You know, what was really funny is actually when one thing I noticed after I moved there was that I had to sort my trash in a really detailed and <laughs> manner. Um, essentially, you know, there are differences between different types of plastics, things that could be incinerated, things that could not be incinerated. So you don't want to apparently burn batteries because they blow up or something like that. Mm. But anyway, but what, what occurred to me is that actually Japan is a country that actually takes recycling extremely seriously. But as the note points out, as we looked at it and from a research perspective, it actually is the second largest per capita user of plastics in the world after the U.S. And then, you know, this year was a very special year in Japan because it hosted the G20 uh, conference in Osaka in June. And ahead of that, the Japanese government, along with many of the companies, wanted to make a show for corporate sustainability. So this manifested itself in a number of ways. One was the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Essentially, uh, Japan, there's over almost 200 companies in Japan that have become a member of the TCFD, uh, meaning that they will voluntarily disclose their business uh, risks and opportunities with regards to what might happen if the climate changes, the risk associated with climate change, um, and also what they're going to do about it. Essentially, are they going to help sort of uh, mitigate climate change, et cetera? And then there's a, you know two other indicators that happened. Was one was around sort of 25 companies also joined the RE100, which is a group that pledges to use 100% uh, renewable energy for its operations by a certain year. Uh, and then the other one is what we just discussed, which is this plastics ban. But I think, you know, I think one of the issues is that this is all great, that we see all this progress this year. But I think still Japan has a long way to go. And essentially all these companies made these pledges and there's really sort of high hopes for these things. Um, but then it's, it's a bit like, okay, what do we do now? The motivation for these commitments, do you feel that it is predominantly coming from government incentives and will end up with regulation? Is it coming from the companies themselves and wanting to attract customers and capital? Where is the Japanese motivation from your perspective? That's a really good question. I mean, I think in this case, we can say that it is coming, um, at least this year, a lot of this stuff is coming from government. The government, um, you know, the prime minister, uh, Prime Minister Abe is actually leading uh, or pushing some of these efforts. To a certain extent, the government uh, is doing this because it wants to put on a good sort of uh, good face ahead uh, before the G20 meeting. Um, and also Japanese companies, I think, realize that, you know, many of them are pretty sophisticated. They're pretty, uh, they have businesses around the world. They have a lot of operations in, in Europe where, you know, this conversation is further advanced. So they realize that actually they are falling behind their, some of their global counterparts. 
uh, and they need to to do something about it. And there are, you know, there's some evidence to show that Japanese consumers are um, sort of waking up to this. But still, it's, uh, uh, you know, being in London the last two days, I've noticed that actually, you know, we, you know, we don't really use uh, single-use straws or a lot of single-use plastics now in sort of coffee shops and supermarkets here. That's not the case in Japan. Um, when you go buy something, you still get pretty a lot of uh, packaging in plastics, whether you ask for it or not. So the interest level's high, and perhaps there are some easy gains to be made, but still a long way to go in terms of of a starting point to finish line, let's say. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think one observation I made, and this is sort of my, my personal view on this, uh, you know, if, if you live in Japan, it's... Um, the environment is really, really nice, right? There's not air pollution is is not a problem. The waste is uh, mostly incinerated. Actually, more than um, half of all the plastics uh, in Japan that get discarded are incinerated. So you don't have these massive landfills and things like that. It's that's much higher than global average. So in some ways, you you live in a very nice environment, uh, and you don't really realize that sort of waste is a major issue because you don't see it. The streets are really, really clean, and there's no, you know, you don't see sort of evening news stories about plastic in the ocean and and things like that. Um, And you don't experience sort of air pollution. I used to live in in China, and that air pollution was a major visible issue, and the government had to do something about it immediately. So... I don't want to use the word complacent, but it is it is not there, right? And and I think actually that makes it a little more difficult sometimes to uh, to get uh, well to, to feel a sense of urgency towards issues like this. I'm glad you brought China up because that is another country that you listed, and I think you really can't talk about energy or Asia without talking about China. They have come a long way in the last few years, and I think our forecasts, and I'm looking specifically at our uh, H2 2019 China market outlook, so we're looking out into the future there. The the forecast we're showing is a lot more renewable energy in their future. So can you talk a little bit about where we see China now and where we see China going? Sure. I, I mean, we, we really can't talk about a lot of things these days about thinking about China, right? It's, sure. it's sort of the big uh, the elephant in the room and on a lot of things. Um, one thing we notice about China is that there is a, first of all, there is a, a slowdown uh, in China in, in sort of the first half of this this year. Uh, when we say slowdown, we mean a number of things. One is that the GDP growth rate is the lowest in 27 years. You know, some of that has to do with the, the trade issues that are ongoing and, and other factors. But more relevant to what we look at as well, um, power demand growth is the lowest in a number of years as well. Uh, still growing pretty, uh, pretty robustly, but, but, but slowing. And then another sort of shocking number we noticed is, was that in the last 14 months, um, there's been negative growth in car sales, specifically sort of internal combustion engine car sales. And this is the world's, obviously, the world's largest auto market. So that's a, that's a pretty surprising uh, statistic for a lot of people to sort of get their heads around. But while all this is happening, you might say, okay, if, if, if sort of there's some economic headwinds in China right now, does it mean the clean energy transition or all the other things that we talked about before in China, is all of that going to be derailed or slowed in some way? And the good news is that we don't, we don't see that. So we see that, for instance, even though uh, car sales overall have been down for over a year, uh, electric vehicle sales are still growing. And we expect actually... Uh, something like 1.8 million electric vehicles to be sold in China this year versus a million last year. So almost a doubling of, of, of that. We see that clean energy capacity 
uh, is still increasing, um, not as uh, you know, not as much as before, but still still increasing. And that um, in some ways, that now eight percent of China's electricity comes from wind and solar, which is uh, not an insignificant number. And you know, we think that might cross the threshold of ten percent at some point within the next year. So that's that would be an, a really interesting milestone, I think, for uh, you know the world's largest electricity system. Which is a story not only just about China supplying energy to Chinese citizens, but also from a scope three emission standpoint. So if you're thinking about the emissions that are associated with all of the materials that then go into things that are manufactured in other parts of the world, a great number of them are manufactured in China. So I suppose that this is really a global story in addition to it being their story. So my question ultimately about China is that you would think if renewable energy is really going to take off. It's a policy decision. Do you see that reinforced or do you see a lot of companies looking at just the economics as you do in some places like the U.S. or you see power purchase agreements and saying, well, actually, this is just the cheapest form of energy? Yeah, of course. I mean, it is all policy driven, right? And the, the government in China, both the central government, and the local governments, they all play a pretty important role in all of this. Um, in some ways, if, if you look at um, policy in, in China, it's, um, you know, obviously a lot of it was needed at the beginning to, to spur uh, all this growth in both renewable energy capacity that's being deployed in the country and also in all the manufacturing that took place. And, you know, that, manufa- that sort of scale up in manufacturing capacity is what uh, in some ways helped us get to really cheap uh, renewable energy today for um, almost everywhere in the world. So yeah, so so policy still plays a very, uh, very, very important role. What's interesting in in China is that actually for years, what the government has been trying to do is build uh, so-called uh, zero subsidy renewable energy. Now, that's a slightly a mis a misnomer. It doesn't mean that these are um, what we call merchant projects in other countries. In other words, you 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 kind of um, you, you leave a, a renewable energy project to the whims of the the power market, right? Without giving it any subsidies. Essentially, what it, what it means is that uh, they want to build wind and solar projects um, at the same price as and give it uh, the same price as as a coal-fired power plant, essentially, which is a, a regulated uh, price. Um, and of course, thanks to um, you know cheaper and cheaper equipment and and, and sort of lower costs of all these projects, um, the government's getting very very close uh, to this goal. So we have more and more projects now. That are being built uh, without additional subsidies. Um, so, and that that's helped. But we have to remember, it's still a very long way to go, right? Um, it's and you know, there's a figure where um, there's over something like 32 billion dollars uh, of subsidies being owed to renewable energy projects in China um, because of you know the subsidies used to be so generous for these these projects. Uh, there's a huge backlog. So if we want to see China sort of complete this transformation and build more and more renewable energy projects, they obviously cannot subsidize them at, at that kind of a rate. It has to find a different way. But it's going to take time. It's going to take time to steer the, the ship around. Wouldn't the returns be difficult at that rate too because the coal plants are running at a higher capacity factor more of the time as opposed to wind or solar? That's right, yeah. Uh, I mean, what, what's interesting is that I think one of the barriers obviously keeping, um, preventing renewable energy from, let's say, achieving its potential is that, um, you know, we have to keep the lights on, right? You have to run these coal-fired power plants, and you have to run them at a certain rate. Otherwise, uh, they become uncompetitive or the, the machinery suffers from breakdowns and, and all this other stuff. 
But I, I think now, actually, we, we see some evidence, at least in the beginning of the year, that um, renewable energy is getting more priority dispatch uh, in some cases. And, and actually, coal-fired power plants are you know, being scaled down a little bit. So that's, that's a very good sign. But you know, we have to remember, I think, even though some parts of the world now we talk about sort of net zero emissions or shutting down all the coal-fired power plants, China's still building new uh, coal-fired power plants. Actually, in, in our sort of... Um, Forecasts, uh, we expect China to build its last coal-fired power plant in something in 2027. So it's, it's still many years to go. And of the coal-fired power plants in China today, um, it's a very young fleet. So 40% of them were built in less than 10 years ago. So they still have a long way to go. So it shows you that even though renewable energy is ramping up and you can kind of create a lot of positive headlines around that story, there's still a, you know there's still a lot of coal and we still will still take time to get through all of that. Just before this interview, BNEF published a, a research note that said, you know, I know, I know we're getting out of Japan, China, and India here, but uh, Indonesia, for now, coal remains king, where the government is pushing a, a kind of a coal agenda. Uh, but it seems from our modeling that uh, the coal is being pushed out of the out of the market earlier than expected in Indonesia. So there seem to be signs that uh, coal is kind of on the way out in Asia, but uh, still going to be around for quite a while. That's right. Yeah, I mean, we we always say that it, it is it is going to be on its way out. Um, obviously, re- renewable energy will be competitive against coal. Eventually, these plants will shut down. It's it's always a question of of when, not not so much if. But I, I think the the caution I would I would bring to this is that the when could be actually quite a while uh, longer. Uh-huh. Um, and and Indonesia is one of these cases. Obviously, it has a lot of domestic sources of coal that it wants to deploy. India, which I, I think we'll talk about in a moment, is another one of these cases where there's there's a lot of coal and it's going to take time before that that's all going to sort of be be sort of shut down or, or or decommissioned. Let's do India. Let's move that direction right now because I think that's you know very different story than the other two countries where you're seeing citizens, economic incentives, companies all kind of pushing in the same direction. India is really interesting because there's just a lot of different things all kind of happening concurrently, and maybe it's a little more difficult to figure out what the direction of travel is. Absolutely. I mean, if we if we just sort of take a step back and think about India, right? It wasn't it wasn't so long ago that India um, or the Indian government rather would advance the argument that look, climate change is a, is is a problem for rich countries to deal with. We are a developing country. We still need to develop and, and, and sort of lift millions and millions, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Um, and that's going to require emissions, right? And industry and, and, and coal and all this other stuff. Um, but of course, you know, we, we see now that actually um, even that sort of narrative is starting to shift uh, in, in India, uh, that the government is becoming, uh, you know, open to the idea of, 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 of talking about sort of uh, climate change and doing something to, to its emissions. The point about India is that actually um, one sort of interesting or perhaps shocking number that we uh, notice is that uh, in about less than 10 years' time, India is going to overtake the U.S. and become the world's second largest emitter of, of carbon dioxide. So, you know, we need to take a closer look at India. Um, and that's because of growth in India or reducing demand in U.S.? It's, it's a little bit of both. Obviously, the U.S. Okay. is becoming uh, cleaner in, in, in the sense from a carbon emissions perspective because of all the gas that's, that's coming online. But yeah, and also it's growth in India, of course, right? Mm-hmm. India, India's economy is 
Let's remember, India's economy is about half the size of Japan, um, and it has about uh, six times the population of that of Japan. We talked about this in our road fuels episode uh, not too long ago. We noticed that a big part of the emissions from transport will come from India uh, in the near future because of the the growth in transportation from private vehicles and and hired vehicles and deliveries. So, is that where the emissions are coming from, or is it mostly coming from stationary sources like coal? It's it's going to be both.、Um, you know, we have to remember that India has a lot of room to grow almost everywhere, right? If you if you if you look、sure. at all the sectors. Transport, industry, agriculture, even power generation—you know everything. India will have room to grow. A lot of it, yes, will be—you know—we are talking actually about、um, in this case specifically about power sector emissions.、Uh-huh. Um, so yes, it, it, it is、uh, a lot of that growth will be coming from the new coal-fired power plants that are, are being built in India. Simply,、um, there's not le- enough electricity in India for its population or for its economy to grow at the moment. So it will result in a lot of new、uh, building of coal-fired power plants. But the other thing I want to say is actually this might be a little bit of a doom and gloom story about India, but actually there are signs of hope as well, right? One thing is that、uh, you know India has some of the most competitive、um, wind and solar auctions in the world, so it helps it achieve very、uh, low prices for solar projects. So some of the solar projects built are actually very competitive, even though some of them do run into problems here and there. But nevertheless, it's it's a good it's a good thing. On the other hand, the Indian government is also very ambitious.、Um, recently, it's sort of well after Modi was, was sort of、uh, returned for his second term, they've announced some fairly ambitious goals towards、uh, electrification of of,、uh, of transport. Whether it's sort of the two or three wheelers, the tuk-tuks, if you will, that you see on the on the roads in in,、uh, in Indian cities, or towards some of the heavier stuff as well. So there is ambition to do something about it. But again, you know, it's it's a case of、um, it still has a ways to go, and the question is: Is it going to be too little, too late? Right? Can the world sort of afford India to get rich before it gets clean? And,、mm-hmm. and you know, that's that's an age-old sort of debate. But obviously,、uh, you know, we're hopeful in the sense that at least it's、uh, the government and companies there are actually open to considering solutions and looking at new things. What's stopping India from? And I know we don't love this term, but leapfrogging some of the traditional high carbon energy sources of the industrial revolution, and maybe skipping a little bit to some of the stuff that has a lower cost associated with it in other regions. Apparently, not so cheap there. Look, I mean, I think that is a great hope of of many people, right? That that in the sense that for countries today, any developing country today, it doesn't have to do things that other countries did a hundred years ago. There there are other ways to do it. To an extent, that is true. I mean, I think in India itself, there is a debate about that as well. For instance,、uh, there's a debate about whether you know the, the so-called China development model is the right one, right? Whether India should go for heavy manufacturing,、um, and if it does do that, obviously its consumption of, of uh, fossil fuels will increase significantly, and its emissions will increase significantly. So, is that the way to go, or should it? Sort of leapfrog that and look for high tech and new technologies and and things that are less sort of Uh, energy intensive, so there's a debate about that. But but you know, I think it's it's not that simple, obviously, right? I think there is there's still heavy industry there. There's still a need for power and energy, even if you take a slightly lower carbon, you know, less carbon intensive route. You still need a lot more of this stuff, and it's still relatively poor place, and and it requires,、uh, I think, a lot of investment and growth before it, it can make these kind of decisions. So you know, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm sort of ex-、uh, excusing it,、um, but I think the challenge is pretty enormous, and we, I think we have to sort of acknowledge that. So we gave you this challenge of three countries, which was a little bit 
unfair because we we put the onus on you to decide the um, the notes that we were going to focus on. And then Mark threw Indonesia into the conversation. If there was another country, what was the runner-up that you would have wanted to talk about that we don't have time to talk about today? Well, actually, Indonesia is, is, is a pretty good one. <laughs> so that, that was good. Um, I think interesting things are also happening uh, across Southeast Asia. So Indonesia would, would be one. Obviously, it's very large. They're a significant uh, contributor to emissions, etc. But other ones we see progress are places like uh, Malaysia or, or Thailand. Malaysia, for instance, was a uh, country that didn't really have a very, let's say, sophisticated view. Not long ago, at least, it, it, it you know wasn't really talking a lot about any of this stuff, about energy transition or climate or uh, things like that. But recently, I think, has actually made a lot of progress, has looked at sort of deregulating its power market, looked at EVs, looked at... Um, sort of advancing environmental policy. So there's a lot of things happening there, and that's, that's very interesting. Um, one more I'll throw in there actually is Vietnam. Uh, there's also a lot of interest there because it's, um, it has one of the fastest power demand sort of growth um, stories in the region. It has a lot of coal-fired power plants, and there are a lot of countries lining up to build more coal-fired power plants in, mm-hmm. in the Vietnam. But actually, Vietnam uh, experienced a, a very large boom in solar in the first half of this year, thanks to actually some new policies and, and some new activities uh, that took place there. So, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it'll be good to keep an eye on these countries, actually, because they are, like India, they're growing faster. But also, like India and, and China, to a certain extent, they're becoming more and more open to uh, looking at new things and new ideas. It's good to know that we will have plenty to talk about next time you pass through London. Justin, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.